0: everyone here, if this is your first time here, I want to extend an extra warm welcome to you. Um, we love that you are here. I mean, we are excited that you are here if this is your first time. And if, if you don't even, if you don't uh, identify as being a Christian, uh, we're really excited that you're here. This is going to be a safe place for you, a, a place for you to ask questions afterwards, a place for you to come and, and uh, seek prayer. And my prayer, straight off the bat, is going to be that you will have an encounter with Jesus today. That, that's my prayer. I'm, I'm not going to hide that. I'm not going to try to hoodwink you. Uh, that's why I'm here. Uh, that's, his, this, that's why I am doing this. Um, so just letting you know off the bat. We are in the middle of the series, as Matt uh, mentioned, on the book of 1 Peter. And we're calling it Church on the Margins because as we live our life in Sydney, in this culture, we are experiencing things... That 50 years ago, people didn't experience. 50, 60 years ago, the church, even, even geographically, was the center of a town. It was the center of everything. It was, it was often the meeting town, it was all, often the town hall. But today, that's not the truth. Today, the church is actually on the margin. So, how do we respond to this? How do we live lives of faithfulness to Jesus in a culture? that says we're dumb or stupid or naive or violent. How do we do that? And that's, that's the purpose of, of this today. That's the purpose of uh, uh, 1 Peter being written. So with that said, before we jump into it, I need to pray uh, because this is, has been probably one of the hardest sermons, one of the hardest texts that I have had to wrestle with. Um, so I need help, trust that, uh, but trust that that you will need help to listen. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, um, not despite the rain, but thank you for the rain. Uh, we thank you for all the good things that you give us in this world. Uh, We don't want to disdain any good gift that you uh, give us from your hand. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for just enough health uh, for us to be here. Um, And we do pray for those who are unwell. I pray for my my wife and my kids now and and for all uh, people here who who are experiencing any kind of illness. Um, And we pray for those who are away. um, And we ask now, Lord, that you will make me clear, that you will help me to forget the things that will not be helpful today. And help me to remember the things that will be helpful, so that your people will be built up, that they will be edified, that they will be encouraged, and that those who are far from you may come near today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the things I've experienced, uh, one one of the worst things I've experienced is just being unprepared. And I don't know how, if you've ever experienced that, you walk into a lecture hall and all of a sudden there's a quiz. And that you just did not prepare for, you did not know about. Or you, a bill comes that you just did not put anything away for. Have you ever felt that? And you're just thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I remember when Anthony, my firstborn, he's six now, but when he was born, he was about five weeks early. Five or six weeks early, I remember. And we were just not ready. I mean, this was our first kid. The crib wasn't built. The house was still a mess. because We didn't do that deep nesting clean that people do before you, you get a kid. That just didn't happen. I don't know if it's happened still, but it, it just it didn't ha- it hasn't happened. We clean. Don't, don't worry. We do. <laughs> it, it just didn't happen. And there was just this feeling, this, this gut just wrenching of just being unprepared to actually have a kid come into this world and just not having anything ready for it. That's one of the worst feelings. And I feel that a lot of us are just not... We're walking through life unprepared. We're walking through life in the humdrum of life unprepared for what may come. And let me guarantee one thing to you. If it hasn't happened, suffering... And persecution will come. And the question is, are we prepared? I mean, when we see this evil happen all around the world, and in particular to and with the church, what do we do? I mean, when we hear on the news about our brothers and our sisters in Christ who are being beheaded around the world, what, what, do, we, what do we do with that? Like, how, how do I package that and make, make sense of that in, in this world? What do we do when racism hits and nine people are shot down during a Bible study that happened last week in South Carolina? What do we do with that? And a lot of us haven't experienced that type of persecution. But the the people who this letter was written to, they hadn't either just yet. What they were experiencing was slander and abuse, and some people were losing their jobs and losing credibility. That too is a form of psychological persecution. But are we even ready for that? Because Peter, he's saying, it's coming for you. Physical, psychological, it's coming. And he writes this letter to bolster the people up, to put cement in their souls so that when it comes, and it will come, they stand firm. And that's hope. And that is hope. Because what we need to do is we need to move forward in this world, in this culture, in two ways, being humble, but also being confident. And those two things oftentimes are seen as two different traits that at sometimes we are humble and at other times we are confident. But there is a way, which we'll get to, there is a way for us to live in this world, in this culture, in your world as a teacher, as a mom, as a student, as a construction worker, as a parent, humbly and confident. So with that said, I want you to open up the scriptures with me to 1 Peter 3. It should be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but if you don't own one, we have some in the back that we want to give you as a gift if you do not own one. 1 Peter chapter 3. 3 is a large number. 18 is a small number. And we'll begin here. 4. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous suffered. For the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit for Christ. And one of the things that we are excited, we, we, we pride ourselves, we, we are excited about the scriptures, and we will not ever skip over a hard text. And this is one of the hardest ones that I've ever had to dealt with. So we're gonna go slowly, it's just a few verses. But I need you to stick with me. For. Now, whenever we see this word for, it's giving us a reason for what's to come. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, previously in verse 14, he says this Peter, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear and do not be troubled. Why? For Christ also suffered. I don't know what you've experienced, what, what kind of uh, suffering you have experienced in your life. I just, I don't know. I know, I know a few of you guys uh, personally, some very personally, but I just, I have no clue. I have no, no categories, and I, I don't know the extent. And I would not want to make light of anyone's suffering, large or large or small, I would not want to compare someone's suffering to someone else. One of the most dangerous things that I think can happen is for me to say, hey, someone else has it worse. Oh, you're suffering that way, but someone else has it, someone else has it worse somewhere else. It's like me saying, hey, are you happy? doesn't really matter because someone else is happier anyway. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't validate our suffering. Because Peter, here in verse 14, not in our text, in, in uh, uh, text previous, which P- uh, Brian will be speaking on next week, he's saying, You're suffering for righteousness' sake. Do not be afraid, for Christ also suffered. And Then he says this Why? To bring you to God. It's often said that people who understand the gospel, sorry, religious people, people who are more religious will obey God to get something from Him. But people who understand the gospel will obey God to get God. And oftentimes I think, okay, why, why did Jesus come to rescue me? I mean, if you knew me, you would know I'm not someone who necessarily deserves to be rescued, right? And yet he does. And I ask, why? To bring me to God. The question you ask yourself is, why would God want me? Is there some, alter, you know, some other motive that he has in his heart? It, does he love the future version of me? And he's sort of just picking up, he goes to the junkyard, picks up scraps and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to polish this up because I'm going to just, just love the future version of it. Christ suffered once for sins to bring you to God. God loves you. And so often we've heard that over and over and over and over and over again, that it no longer has the effect that it should. We should be exploding in praise now, thinking that God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, came, died, Suffered once for sins to bring you to God. That's amazing. And even this week while I was pouring over this and pouring over this and pouring over this, I just skipped it, skipped it, skipped it, skipped it. Like, yeah, I get that. And I need prayer just as much as anyone to allow this more and more and more for this to melt my heart. And you want to ask yourself the question why he did this. Yes, it is to bring glory to God. Yes, it is for his name. Yes, it is to collect a people for his name. Yes, it is so that the entire world can be saturated with images of him. But he suffered for you. For you. Like for you. Because he likes you, and he loves you. And he continues. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made, made alive in the spirit. What, what, what is Peter trying to say here? It's quite simple. He was put to death in the body. He, they killed his flesh, his body, his sinew, his blood poured out, his side was stabbed, his, his, his feet and his hands were pierced, they put him to death. But there's a glorious, glorious, glorious interjection here, but he was made alive in the spirit. By which he means that the body with which he was raised was not like the body with which went into the grave. He came out with this spiritual body. And if you read the Gospels, and if you, if you haven't, please read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And towards the end, you have these stories, these witness accounts that, that see, they experience Jesus in his resurrected body. A body that's not like this, but a body that so often as Christians we think is ghostly. I mean, I grew up thinking that, yeah, Jesus, he came back, sure, but the guy could walk through walls, right? I mean, just picture this, we're the disciples, right? And our leader, our Messiah, who we thought was going to deliver us, they just put him to death on a Roman cross, he is buried. He is dead. They took him off the cross, and he was lifeless. And we get together. We lock the doors because we're afraid of the authorities. And then Jesus just straight up, what's up? Were you guys talking about me? Like, what, what's, what's, that, what's going on? Give me some fish. I, I want to prove to you. I want to prove to you that I'm not an apparition. I want to prove to you that I'm not a ghost. Give me some fish. Thomas, come here, touch my side, feel the wounds. And yet, he can eat, he can have a meal. And yet, he can walk through walls. That's amazing. And one day, you will too. He promises that the same body that he was raised in the spirit, we will have two So he was raised he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit And this is where things get a bit tricky Verse 19 follow In which he went and proclaimed to the spirit in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Why? What? And to be honest with you, uh, there, while I was studying this, I was even surprised at how many different views there could be. The possibilities are almost endless as to the ingenuity that people can come to the text and say, it can mean this, 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 or, or this. In fact, theoretically, there are 180 possibilities I did not go through all of them there, Uh, uh, and I will not be going through all of them with you, but what is he trying to do here? And before we even get there, so often we get so stuck with the trees and we forget about the forest. And what's the forest? The purpose here is what? So that Peter could encourage his readers. And so that the Holy Spirit can carry this text through the century and the millennia so that we too, who may be experiencing things that Peter's readers were, will also be encouraged. So encouragement should guide the way in which we see this text. With that said, the Spirit's in prison. There's this story In Genesis chapter 6, I was too late to put it up there, but I'm going to read it to you. Genesis chapter 6, there's a story just before the flood happens where Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives are saved through the flood in the ark. But this is what happened just before the flood waters came. When man, this is Genesis 6, 1 to 4, when man began to multiply on the face of Of the land, and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4 The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore them children. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now this story, this little snippet has carried on through Jewish uh, um, tradition. And this story says that there was these, these, these sons of God, angels presumably, which we'll see in 2 Peter and Jude is what that means. Angels who actually disobeyed God came down to earth and married human women. Now, some of you may be thinking, hold on, this sounds a bit spooky, but I, I, I just told you that Jesus resurrected with a body that can have fish and walk through walls. This is a piece of cake. This is nothing compared to the reality of who Christ is and who he's making us to be. You want to see a miracle? You want to see something weird? I'm a Christian. That's weird. I I believe that this is the word of God, that God actually sent this to us through the prophets and copied it down and and kept it for us. That's weird. I I find that harder to believe. But in our culture in the way we think. We think this is just crazy. That doesn't happen. No, no. Let me tell you this. This doesn't happen. I am something harder to believe that that I love God who I shunned all my life. That's a bigger miracle. And here we have these angels who are fallen who marry daughters of men because they were attractive to them and they bore kids to them. And what happens? Jude, and I know I'm jumping around here, Jude was Jesus' half-brother. And he says this, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great And Peter, in 2 Peter, says this, For if God, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment. These very angels are the angels, the spirits, that Peter is talking about. When Christ resurrected His ascension to the right hand of God, which we'll see in verse 22. His dominion, his authority, his conquering, even, listen, evil that is primitive. And Peter is bringing up this story to show them hey, there's this evil that's been in the world for countless of eons, and yet the resurrection conquered that. What do you have to fear from verse 14? If Christ by His dying and His resurrection proclaimed judgment, He proclaimed victory over something that happened eons ago where angels disobeyed God and they fell, what do you have to to fear. In verse 14, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. And he gives us another reason. Why? Because as he rose from death, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And I believe those are the spirits who are in prison. I believe that's what Peter is talking about. And I believe he uses that not just to give us uh, a uh, a hard time with this, but he gives this to them and to us to bolster our confidence in that Christ is victorious. In Colossians, Peter says, uh, rather, Paul, Paul says that on the cross he made a spectacle of them. He conquered them. He, in, in a sense, he, he sort of just wagged his tongue at them and said, I won. And I wonder what evil you're experiencing. I wonder whether there's oppression in this room. I wonder if there's something going on here where you need to hear Christ is victorious. He is vindicated. He has suffered, but he has won. And we're living, sometimes we live as Christians, as if he hadn't won. We're living as if the final verdict isn't given. But listen, it is given. The final verdict is clear. Christ has won. And he invites you now to share in that victory. But why baptism? Why Why Noah? Why baptism? What is it about this story that Peter brings up? He continues in verse 21 about that. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so, let me get this straight. So, Peter is trying to bolster our confidence in Christ's ultimate victory. And then he brings up baptism. And he says, which corresponds to this? To what? To the whole story of Noah and the ark. Let me guide you. In verse 20, it says, a few were saved. In verse 21, that's you. So, where in the, in the Noah narrative, a few were saved. Now, You. And then he says, a few were saved. How? How? Through water. The same water that destroyed the world is that water. The destructive nature of water, that is what saved them. And here, baptism now saves you through the resurrection. Oftentimes we read this and it, it would sound like he's saying that baptism, the act of baptism, which we should celebrate, which we will be celebrating, as if the act of itself, in it of itself, saves you. But he adds a quick caveat. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the flesh. So what is it? He's saying this, in the middle of this hostile culture where Noah was living, people were ridiculing him, people were making fun of him, people were putting him down and denouncing his God that he's listening to. It hadn't rained. Picture this. Picture you... As Noah, It never rained on the earth yet. There was no rain as of yet. And then you're claiming that you're building this boat because we're going to be flooded. How is that so? And people were just de- deriding him. And even in the middle of that culture, they were saved. And oftentimes we feel that we're in the middle of this culture that is just continually deriding us, continually putting us down, continually putting us out. And yet, through the resurrection, you will be saved. So in the same way that Noah battled against this, is the same way that oftentimes in our culture we do. And it's through the resurrection that you will be saved. Saved. Who has, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is it. He is at the right hand, and that is imagery for saying he is powerful. He is all powerful. And sometimes we need to hear that on a continual basis. Because we are all battling here, whether you realize it or not. Whether you're being passive in your battle or you're active, we need a rescuer. We need someone who has conquered evil. We need someone who is sitting at the right hand of God, which knows that the work is finished, not to tell us, come and complete the work with me, but to tell us it is done. Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of power because it is done. But we forget. There's a story about this Quaker. He's a a Quaker theologian in America, this guy called Parker Palmer. And he uh, has a story about where he used to live, where he uh, would experience severe blizzards throughout the winter. So even to get the mail, what he would do, he would tie a rope around his waist, tie it to the house, go out, get his mail, and then let the rope lead him back into the house. And so often we lose sight of who we are, of our baptism identity, of being put down into the water and dying with Christ and rising with Christ. We forget that. We forget to live into our baptism and are reminding Peter, reminding them, and me reminding you about our baptism is what? Reminding you that you have died with Christ and you are risen with him. And that is the rope that we need to tie around ourselves and to tie to the truth and just remember that that's going to lead us back to who we really are, which are the baptized ones, the ones who identify with Jesus going into the water in death and coming out of it in new and powerful life. And there are a couple things that we can do to remind ourselves, some practices that I want to uh, offer you so that we can be reminded so these things can be tethers for us to the gospel so that when we forget when life comes at us, When persecution comes at us, when you are defamed at work for being a Christian, when you don't want to go out and get plastered because you actually want to make it to to the gathering the next day, and people are making fun of you for that. It's happened to me. What do you do with that? How How do you deal with that? Tether yourself to the gospel. Tether yourself to the reality that when you were baptized, you proclaimed to the world that you're dead with Christ and you're living with Him. So, a couple things that I would encourage you to do gospel triplets. We'll be having some training, I believe it's the 28th. Come to that. Get yourself involved in a relationship where the gospel can be applied to the crevices of your life. And even now, some of us may be saying, No, I I don't want that. I'm okay with just coming to the gathering and and maybe going to gospel community where I don't really need to engage with these things. But I encourage you, there is gold underneath the rubble of your sin. And the Holy Spirit is pressing upon my heart and is, is pressing upon your heart now that we need this. You know, gospel triplets, something like that, isn't, oftentimes we think, oh, it's just another program. It's just something else to do. Breathing is just something else to do. <laughs> Eating, well, that's just something else to do. You need it to live and we need these kinds of gospel centered relationships that, that are going to speak the gospel into your life that are going to see the way you treat your wife and your kids and call you up on that you need that i need that you need those kinds of relationships that will look you in the face with tears in your with tears in their eyes if need be and say i love you how Can we apply the gospel to this area of your life? How do you stay tethered to the gospel? How do you remind yourselves of your baptismal identity of being in with Christ and alive with him, dead with him and alive with him? How do we do that? One way is by simply joining a gospel triplet. Another way is our gospel communities. That's also another way where we can get together and tether ourselves to the gospel. Some of the most amazing times, some of the most transformative times have been through these kinds of relationships. I remember a couple of years ago where um, I'm American, if you haven't caught from the accent, it's a bit weak now, but um, my friend Brian here, he, his accent's still much stronger. He's from California. And I remember one time when, uh, I, I didn't speak to Brian if I could share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. <laughs> A couple years ago, we'd met on the train. This wasn't planned. We met on the train and we, we said, oh, hey, we're both Americans, let's do Thanksgiving together. So we did. They came over our house and we, we'd met some other friends that we, we never knew and uh, we're lifelong friends now. But at the end, we had all this food left over. And I thought, oh, great. I'm going to have like Thanksgiving for a week, <laughs> you know, knowing me. And, and Brian, uh, Brian schooled me here. He, he said, hey, I'm just going to take this. I'm going to take it down to King's Cross, and I'm just going to hand it out. It was nothing, no program, nothing planned, nothing special. But that act of generosity on his part schooled me. And that's a term, you know, I don't know what what we use in Brooklyn. When you school someone, it was transformative for me. It taught me how to be a disciple of Christ. And it's in those kinds of relationships where people are in your house on a weekly basis, sometimes more, where the gospel is formed in us. And we remember who we are. The third way. So gospel triplets, gospel communities, and the third way is to relax. Relax in Jesus. Enjoy Him. So often we, we get so tightened. Like we, we get so wound up. And what a breath of fresh air to hear that your work in the gospel is to relax in Christ. That, that's your job. Your, your job. I mean, I have a friend who, who uh, I think his job is pretty relaxing. He plays on Facebook all day. Right? That, that, that's what he does. That's pretty relaxing. Your job is to relax in Christ. Relish in his finished work for you. Relish that he is now at the right hand of the Father, reigning in victory over every evil. And as C.S. Lewis says, one day all things sad will become untrue. Gospel triplets, gospel communities, and learn how to relax in Christ because he has done it all for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are good. Thank you so much that you are holy. Thank you so much that you call us to be holy in a culture that is increasingly hostile towards you. Father, thank you that we can remember with the help of Peter reminding us about Noah being saved in the middle of a corrupt and depraved generation that we too, Lord, despite the way things look, are also being saved. So help us to remember our baptismal identity. Help us to remember that we have gone down into the waters with Christ, dying with Him, and that we have risen from the waters in victory and in life, living with Him. Help this reality guide and rule our hearts and our lives and our emotions and our words and our actions so that those who are far from you may come near, so that those who you suffered once for in the flesh but was made alive in the Spirit, that they, even those, even now, Lord, that they would come near to you. So we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.